When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And Flynn, tonight we start. Mr. Springsteen made an appearance, well, another appearance, and, and this one was a big one. <laughs> yeah, when you're playing with a, with a Beatle, that's that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, Bruce played, what, two and a half songs with uh, with Paul McCartney at, Paul, at McCartney's stop at MetLife Stadium last week, and... To say Bruce looked good would be an understatement. The guy had a huge smile on his face. He looked ready to rock. And I'm just looking forward to next year even more now. It's so true. And my guitar instructor, we were watching the video together, and he said to me, Bruce looks like you would look if you were up there playing with him. <laughs> well, that, that's a good way to put it. And, and we talked about this. I Well, you asked Steve when we talked to him last year about what would 15-year-old you say if you knew you'd be sharing a stage with Paul McCartney. And what this appearance does is take it to a whole nother level. I mean, Bruce, what would 15-year-old you think about sharing a stage with the Beatle and you guys are seeing a song that you wrote? That's just got to be beyond mind-blowing for him. Yeah, he was loving every minute of it. That much was clear. And I think I posed the question a couple of weeks ago, does he still have it? And I thought maybe <laughs> we'd have to wait until next year to find the answer out mm -hmm. to that. But he has it. He has it. And he looked good. He looked very good. And he had the guitar going for Glory Days, obviously. And, and it was fun just watching him trade. I wasn't there, so I'm just going all by from YouTube videos. It was, it was just fun watching him trade the woohoos at the end of Glory Days with Paul McCartney. They were both having a blast. Uh, you should have gone when we when we spoke about it. You should have gone. The at that point, gone. well, yeah, I, I was. It was funny because I was thinking just before then that maybe you know I should go see a Beatle, go see the Beatle, uh, Paul McCartney, but. The the price tag was just a little bit too much even at that time. But yeah, that's the problem. It's hard to go at the last minute to Paul McCartney, Bruce or no Bruce, because his tickets are heavily, heavily in demand. Yeah. And they they start off high and they get higher. And, you know, like also going to MetLife on a weeknight when you really weren't expecting it can can be a pain. But but hey, you know, through the magic of YouTube videos, I, I was able to see everything. And so were you. Two days shy of 80 years old, McCartney. That was, I think, why Bruce did Glory Days. And God love McCartney. He, how he, <laughs> he pulls it off. 80 years old, and he looks like he's he's 40. And yeah, he's it, he's it, looking good. I, a, yeah, I thought he sounded good from the clips that I saw. A friend of mine saw him in, in Baltimore actually a week or so prior, and he said his voice was showing some signs of signs of aging but come on the, as you said the guy just turned 80 and it's okay we all if we weren't the same we were uh you know 10 15 20 years ago no look we've talked about it several times with bruce and this was great to see uh, just the energy and and he sounded really good i thought glory days was great now as you point out he must have been in high heaven to be up on that stage and have mccartney singing the chorus of glory days with them 
And then the I want to be your man was was tremendous. So all around a great night. I'm sure everyone who was there loved it. Not to knock the Coldplay appearance, but <laughs> this was way beyond that. At least <laughs> I wasn't it either. But at least from what I've seen in the videos, this was this was big. Well, there are also I mean, they were very different performances with Coldplay. Obviously, they were just playing guitar and piano. And in this case, you had the whole you know, McCartney's entire rock band behind them. So it's it's they're very different appearances, and and obviously, a lot of McCartney's fans overlap tremendously with with Bruce fans, and you, I don't think the same can be said for Coldplay. I think it's also a little different because McCartney, not saying that Chris Martin isn't a confident performer because he clearly is, but McCartney was milking the whole Bruce thing because he's Paul McCartney. He doesn't care. <laughs> you want to come up on stage and the crowd's going to yell for Bruce? That does not bother Paul McCartney. Yeah, well, another little difference between Chris Martin and Paul McCartney is that one of them was a Beatle. <laughs> that is huge. Come on. Fucking huge, Al. There's no doubt about that. And and I think Steve and Maureen were there as well. I'm a little surprised Steve didn't make it onto the stage. He made it onto the stage the last time that Bruce played with McCartney at the Garden. But this time, I, I guess he just watched. I guess so. But that's OK. It sounded like they had a fun time. Uh, Maureen posted that it was the first show. She had seen since the pandemic, and she said she had she had a blast, and only for a Beatle would she come out. The next thing we want to touch on at the top of this episode, uh, some enterprising posters on the BTX forum discovered some copyright filings, which are very, very interesting, I think, as it relates to the Sony sale. And uh, we finally have some kind of scope as to what's included, and basically it's everything. <laughs> Well, first off, let's give credit to the the exact poster. It was Chris 102 who, who discovered the filings and that there were 539 songs that actually were they were, I guess they were transferred from from Bruce to Sony as part of this big deal. Hal, you uh, you know a little bit about this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've actually done this kind of stuff when when we sell a movie. Well, there's two things that can happen. You can license material, which is what Bruce has been doing his entire career to Sony Music, and they've distributed it. Or you can actually sell the copyright, which is obviously what has taken place here. So with that, you have to assign the copyright. And there's actually two filings that Chris found. The first filing was everything that was copyrighted to Bruce Springsteen has now been assigned to Thrill Hill Music LLC which is obviously an entity they've created for the purposes uh, of the sale. And then from there, Thrill Hill Music LLC in the next filing transferred everything to Sony Music and to a second entity we don't know much about called Asbury Boss LLC, which I actually did look up and was filed in Delaware in October of last year. Well, besides the fact that Asbury Boss sounds like a BTX username. Uh, <laughs> that is the truth. <laughs> I think the most interesting thing is that since, as you said, the sale obviously covers everything from everything released to everything in the vaults, and there are many, many song titles in this list that just sound so so tantalizing. Obviously, there is stuff that we kind of we kind of know about, like the Grzecki co-writes. Uh, 1945 and Dark and Bloody Ground, Another Thin Line, but then also, also some songs that we had heard about that existed, such as uh, King's Highway and 100 Miles to Jackson and Lonely Night in the Park. But then you got just dozens and dozens of other song titles that we've never even heard of before. And 
in that way, this is just a very tantalizing list that we would like to think that it's an indicator that some kind of work on tracks two is, is continuing, but I don't think this is this is a sign or, or this is not the first shot in the tracks two uh, publicity tour. That's for sure. I don't think it is either. This is very standard for the sort of deal we're talking about. As I've said, I've done it myself and looking at the list. It all appeared to be musical works, and that's defined by the Copyright Office as the underlying composition created by a songwriter. So it's all publishing. That's why you have stuff like Band in the USA on there and Born in East L.A. And some of these unknown titles, we don't even know if they were actually recorded. Well, that's a that's a very valid question. And uh, some of these songs we know actually are they have the recording in the Library of Congress, such as. Was it Blind Spot, uh, Father's Day, Between Heaven and Earth? Uh, Backstreet's contributor Sean Poole actually went to the Library of Congress a couple a couple years ago, and he went in and he was able to listen to these songs to the actual recording that they had, and he and he had a little report for for the magazine's website. So you know those are you know three or four songs, and you know is there a, a recording of of a studio recording of I'm trying to try to find a song like end of the century. Is that is that something that there's now recording of that exists in Washington, D.C. at the Library of Congress? It's hard to say. And, and of course, there could be more material filed with the Copyright Office in the future. But right now, there's just many, many questions here. And I don't think we're going to get all the answers from this copyright filing. <laughs> no, we are not. No, you're not. But before we get to uh, the main topic tonight, I want to give a shout out to the Fulfill, formerly the Food Bank of Monmouth and, and Ocean Counties, they're they're putting a they've released a T-shirt with Bruce's cooperation with Bruce's uh, legendary quote from back from uh, the Born in the USA tour, introducing Born to Run. Nobody wins, or remember, in the end, nobody wins unless everybody wins. And you can get them on a nice T-shirt or a, or a women, woman's tank tank top, and it's really cool. And this is a great organization doing. One of one of my favorite phrases that Bruce uses when he talks about these kind of organizations is that they're on the front lines doing God's work, and and they really are. And I got my T-shirt, and I'm really excited to – I'll be wearing it very soon. Very, very nice T-shirts. It's good to give them a plug, and uh, I hope people donate and get the shirt because it, we'll, we'll probably see them around on the next tour. Yes, we will. It's, it's, a, it's a very – one of my favorite quotes from Bruce, obviously, and uh, – and especially in these times when there are people who are still uh, falling through the cracks and uh, these these food banks are doing great work here. Yes, they are. And again, check out the website. It's 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 a really nice T-shirt. Yeah, the website is fulfillnj.org. So uh, stop by, look at the T-shirts, check them out. And uh, if you don't want a T-shirt, hey, feel free to donate money as well. With that, let's return to 2005 and conclude our discussion of the Devils and Dust tour. The tour resumed in early October at the Paramount Theater in Asbury Park. And we had talked about in July, the array of material he was playing, especially tapping into stuff like Tunnel and and the 92 records. That sort of shifted here, but he started moving into a whole different range of material and, and, and that's reflected at the show at the Paramount. I was not there. I forget. Were you there? I was not there. No. But it looked like a pretty interesting show. I guess you were talking about the first the first tour debut of 
of the leg it was the first song of, of of this show and it was idiot's delight the song he co-wrote with with grusecki and i gotta say this is one of the ones that maybe went over my head or, or something but he came out he did it on on with the with the bullet mic so the bullet mic works okay on stuff like born in the usa and reason to believe because at some point you you know these are bruce songs that you know but in this case, I had no idea when I was listening to the bootleg. I had no idea what he was what he was singing. None. And I'm not really sure a lot of other people did either. What, what, were, what were your thoughts on it? I actually went back and listened to some of the various versions of Idiot's Delight today. I have a question, not st- specifically about the show. The 90s version of Idiot's Delight that I guess that Bruce played on his radio show, is, is that backed by the E Street Band? Um, I would have assumed that that song would have been recorded at those March 2001 sessions, but I don't know for sure. Not at all. You think it's from 2001 because there was a version on YouTube today I played and it said it was from 95, the greatest hit sessions, which didn't make sense to me. No, (laughs) that song was not played at the greatest hit sessions. Okay, I I just wanted to clear that up. That was just for me personally. Okay, My, my thoughts on the song. I agree with you, and I was surprised in, as we go through this how often the Idiot's Delight was played on this leg. I didn't realize that until I was looking at it today. Yes, it's not a song that anyone knew at the time, uh, and it, it's just a bit weird. And the performance of it was a bit weird, too. It must have thrown people for a loop opening the show. Now, I never saw Idiot's Delight because I came into this leg a little bit later, and by then it had been replaced with the bullet mic version of Born in the USA. So since I didn't experience it personally, it's hard to say for sure. But listening on tape, it doesn't do much for me. I did see it live when he played it at, uh, at Nassau Coliseum at Long Island on October 9th. And I remember being pretty underwhelmed. But of course, I was kind of underwhelmed by that entire show. But uh, we'll get to that in a, in a few minutes, I guess. The other debuts in Asbury, Ties That Bind, a very interesting version. And I'm sorry, I never got to see that. Atlantic City, a song you would have expected to perhaps show up earlier in the tour. And then from there, you also got I Want to Marry You, which at that time was a true rarity. Well, considering it was played on the ukulele, it was definitely a strange selection. That was one of the things that came out on this leg was, was the uke. I mean, he did I Want to Marry You. He did Growing Up. Um, I think, was was were those the only two? Um, and it's just just so different. I guess you're used to seeing, I mean, Eddie Vedder did a whole album on ukulele, right? That is correct. And so Bruce coming out and doing it was really interesting. Now, what was what was really cool about I Want to Marry You was the way he, he changed one of the lyrics to, you can wear my name, wear my name hyphenated at the end of the song and that that was always got a cute little chuckle from from bruce and and the audience the interesting thing about this leg and i guess because it mainly takes place in the northeast and i was frankly a little disappointed with it by the time i got there and i saw the shows although they were wonderful shows but he really did drop the focus on that 88 to 92 material and now maybe because he thinks that's what the northeast wants to hear it really starts to creep in to more of the classic era and especially as we get to the end uh, there was some stuff that came out that 
definitely a little mind-blowing, but again, just the complete opposite of focusing on, say, Tunnel of Love. Well, yeah, a lot of that, especially the stuff that was just played one time. I mean, the Soul Driver didn't 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 return, and uh, Walk Like a Man did not make an appearance here. But at the same time, One Step Up made a few appearances. Living Proof was still getting uh, regular outings. So there were a couple that stayed in the set, but, but I agree with you, a lot of that other... The wilder stuff that he was doing from from those albums really, yeah, they kind of f- fell by the wayside. And he certainly wasn't experimenting at that point, especially with with that material like he had been in July and August. No, definitely not. And a perfect example: the next show was in Rochester. The one tour debut is Independence Day. Then after that, you go to Hartford. Something in the Night is played on acoustic guitar, which which is interesting, but. Really, for me, what I missed at not seeing the July shows, you saw a lot of songs that you're not going to see with the E Street Band. And obviously here now, when you're getting stuff like Independence Day and Something in the Night, it's interesting to hear them acoustic. But those are songs that, needless to say, are played with the E Street Band all the time. So interesting that he changed the focus of the tour like that. Do you agree that it's based on the fact that he went back to the Northeast? You know, I don't know. Uh, maybe it was he felt that he had pushed the the 92 and 87 material as far as it's going to go uh, in July and August. And now he was he was going back to and playing stuff that it's it had been a while. Uh, I mean, obviously, we we just want to jump ahead to, to Philadelphia where he pulls out, you know, Drive All Night and Thundercrack, both of which hadn't been played in oh, well, uh, Thundercrack since 74 maybe even 73 and then certainly drive all night since 81 well let's not jump that far ahead but you do have (laughs) a couple of like holy crap moments well when you get to minneapolis on october 12th there's a holy crap moment because thunder road is played and he plays it on the piano and that's just beautiful and that of course was with the 30th anniversary box of born to run coming out and (laughs) sorry i'm laughing already at that show in Minneapolis, he pulls out the auto harp and <laughs> plays the new timer. And, well, you you go first. What was your reaction when you saw the auto harp version of the new timer? Um, was it really needed? Couldn't, it, at that point, it just seemed like he was playing stuff. He was playing instruments. <laughs> Just to play them and and to see to see if he could and obviously you know people were could yeah he people weren't going to walk out at that point but at the same time it's you know could couldn't he have just stuck with the guitar for the new timer or yeah that's it, it really it really yeah it, it, it really took on a feel that. I the first time I saw the new timer and and of course it had already been played so I I knew about it but I was just like oh my god what is going on here it was yeah, just, but- it was it was so strange and cool in a way because the balls think about it and I was <laughs> seeing by the time I saw the show uh, you, he was playing the full arenas the balls of a performer to pull out an auto harp playing solo on stage in an arena and, yeah. and play that it, it just it really is sort of mind-boggling yeah he, the man has cojones as they say but so look at this at, at this three song stretch here in minneapolis on october 12th the new timer on auto harp 
Madame Morris Banks back on guitar, and then I Want to Marry You on ukulele. So pretty much all over the map there, at least in terms of the musical uh, interpretations of them, of his own songs. He, he really did press the audience on these shows. And I don't know. I mean, obviously, since I didn't see the October shows here and I didn't see the July and August shows, well, I, I saw Albany, but that was before the period we're talking about. It's hard to say not having witnessed it, but it, it really did take a turn here. And I, I think in many ways, look, this was a very effective tour, and I think these shows were effective, but it, he did seem to go into a mode where he was just like, I'm really going to screw with the audience as much <laughs> as I want. And and that's what you and that's why you had auto harps and ukuleles and and everything else that was going on. And idiots delight and and pump organs and the eBay pianos. Yeah, he was just. I mean, I know those have been around since we started the tour, but it was just kind of, you know, how far can I can I go here? I think you're right. The totality of all of this together, the idiots delight to open the show having a song on an auto harp, having a song on a ukulele. These are perhaps some of the most challenging shows he's ever played for an audience, especially considering the size of some of these venues. It just, it, again, it, it, you really just have to, you really have to say this man has <laughs> very large cojones, as you put it. Uh, yes, he does. And as we're talking about these shows in the early October, let's, we got to talk about You Can Look, which on paper, it's like, yeah, it's, you can look, but he did it on piano and he did it kind of in that. I'm trying to think of the way like a Jerry, Jerry Lewis kind of thing going on. Yeah, like a boogie. Yeah, the like a boogie woogie piano. And I thought that that was pretty cool. It's that wasn't really he wasn't pushing the envelope there. He was squarely in it, rocking the hell out of that thing. I, I really enjoyed that one. I think the whole tour was enjoyable. I, you know, it. I'm looking at the set list as we talk about it. Really interesting set list. Now, Valentine's Day did make an appearance, I should be fair, and point this out on October 15th in Madison. You also got All I'm Thinking About That Night, Ain't Got You was played off tunnel. All That Heaven Will Allow was played off tunnel. So at this point, I wasn't there, but he was still focusing on some of those songs. And again, a point that I made the last time, the overview of his career, that I think is the most impressive thing here. These shows stand in a way that certainly nothing since has stood, where it, he really gave an entire overview of his career from the start to the finish. And I, I think that is, in the end, really the thing that makes this tour really special. Well, as you were talking there about that show in Madison, I'm I'm looking at the set list like you were. I'm thinking, okay, here's Blinded from the first album. You got Incident from the second album. But there's nothing from Born to Run, which I guess is understandable at this point. You got but you got something from Promised Land. Now I'm looking for something from the river. And I don't I obviously he did he did You Can Look and he did Ties It Binded during this time period. Nothing from Born in USA. So he was still skipping a couple of eras, but I think that's okay. He was giving you, though, like I was saying, I think an overview. And obviously, we understand that on these tours, he is generally not focused on the biggest hits for the obvious reasons, because the I think he albums, wants to give right? you. Yeah, I think he wants to give you something different than you're going to see when the band comes out. And that's to his credit. And 
we went from this tour to the Seeger sessions. And then a year later, we were back with the E Street Band. And that was an incredibly diverse batch of touring that he did uh, in, a, in a very compact period of time. I do think as we're talking about it and we're getting here to the end of the tour, again, this just points out really what made this tour special. And, and he was heading towards Philadelphia on October 17th. He actually made an appearance with U2, both him and Patty guested on stage with Bono and the guys. And they did a great version of People Get Ready. That's actually one of my favorite Bruce appearances with U2, not to mention the one that we actually saw. <laughs> okay, well, how does that compare to to Stand By Me, which he did in 87? I can, I like that one a lot. Well, the Stand By Me in 87 is really, really good, too. I, I thought the people get ready. They were they were really into that. That that version, I think it lasted for like 10 minutes or something like they didn't want it to end. It was I thought it was really, really good. And, and every time Bruce joins them, it's great. I mean, they, they have such mutual respect for one another and. It's great to see. I mean, it's great to see for me because those are my two favorite acts of all time. So the fact that that they are that close and that, and that they have this camaraderie is, I love to see it. Yeah, they have lots of mutual respect for each other, as you said, but they're also peers. It's, it's fun to see the fact that you know they can have fun with like that with each other and not just be you know, worshiping each other. After that, Bruce moved on to Worcester. And I think the most notable one in this show is the return of the fever which is really cool. How did he play that? Do you, do you recall? Uh, the fever was on electric piano. Okay. So, so much, got- much different field <laughs> than when he did it with the band. That's for sure. And you also got the I'm on fire on banjo in the show. You got the ukulele and you got the auto harp. So the man played in one show, a banjo, an auto harp and a ukulele. And, and it had, still had that the, that great version of Across the Border on the pump organ. So some of those elements that we saw the, over the summer, they, they were still sticking around. And When You're Alone, Off Tunnel was played in this show. This is a very nice set list. I mean, I know we keep saying this as we've gone through these shows. This one's worthy of release. That one's worthy of release. The diversity of this tour and, and the various instruments and everything we're talking about since we believe this is, they have the entire tour. This is the first tour where they recorded everything, right? Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, so they they have an embarrassment of riches here. To yeah, be sure. I think there's just about some unique rarity, at just about every show from from this tour, especially at least from this leg. I mean, maybe not a tour debut every night, but certainly something good, something good that would be worthy of a release, such as the next night in Providence, where you got valentine's day and real world so that's that's That's, a pretty good combo right there and the the reno into valentine's day into real world that's (laughs) that's a nice trifecta well i think i think i uh i laughed too heartily there but but reno's we talked about it before it's such a beautiful cinematic song and yeah you know he's it's a little uh blunt with the imagery but it works it works on the song and it's so beautiful in in the show Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalist. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. After that, we went through a short period where there really wasn't much in the way of tour debuts. I, I think there was only one. Yeah, here in Boston, he did the traditional encore that often pops up in East Street Band shows. And of course, that's Dirty Water. Well, let me back up a couple of shows. I, I was at the show in Richmond, and I remember as the show progressed going, yeah, there's nothing really mind-blowing here. But that was a solid performance of just about every song. I mean, even... Silver Palomino, I said I said to my friend next to me, I said, wow, that was really good. And that's not something I usually say about Silver Palomino. And I just remember, besides the fact that it was the floor was frozen because it was on top of a hockey rink and they barely had any separation. But that was a it was a really strong show. And it doesn't get any doesn't get any love, obviously, because there weren't any mind blowing tour debuts or mind blowing songs, nor was there any kind of decent audience recording actually there was no audience recording of this show whatsoever we just we got an im a couple years later and that was it but it was a solid show we thought it was kind of he was uh he was warming up for boston for for the filming where he was going to do some standard stuff which he did Rod, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that filming of course that has never appeared strangely well we got one song got man Morris banks a few years ago remember that yeah and that's, but yeah, that's the only thing that's come out of that. And yeah, I would love to see a, a composite of these two, of these two shows put together. I mean, back in your arms, real world, state trooper, as you said, dirty water, lucky town, racing in the street. I mean, it's like you got so much stuff here. It'd be, it would just be a, a tremendous one one to do, like a like they did the No Nukes film. Uh, if you follow along with the No Nukes, it could be. That took 40 years. Maybe in 2045, <laughs> we'll get the Devils and Dust film. <laughs> I hope not. They seem to be doing a heck of a job of making us wait for everything else. But let's hope that doesn't take them that long. All right, <laughs> let's talk about Philly. Were you, you were at both shows? I was at both shows. They were they were something else. Obviously, yeah. the first night, you got the Born in the USA tour debut. It was uh, on, the, on the bullet mic. He was... Uh, stomping on that stomping board. I don't know. If, I think it was a special board. And But then, of course, the big one was Drive All Night. Last Huge. played in 81. Solo piano. It was it was everything you dreamed of. Yeah, I, I wasn't in Philly, but because it was played every night after he left Philly for the rest of the tour, I did see it a, a number of times. And, man, did that pack a wallop. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. And talk about the second night. He had uh, Adam raised the cane, used cars, and Independence Day. And he made a joke about, or not really a joke, he made a comment that his father was on his mind uh, at these shows. And 
I kept hoping for Walk Like a Man to show up in that one, but uh, it was not to be. Instead, we got Santa Ana and Thundercrack. So I think that trade worked out okay. Interesting that in Philly, he always defaults to the to that. Let's go back to 73, 74. And, and that would remain a theme for the for the rest of the tour. You were there. What what did you think of the performances of those two songs? Of course, we had seen Thundercrack at the Christmas shows as well. Well, yeah, but at the Christmas shows they weren't solo piano, and I think that really was, that really was a holy, a holy crap moment right there, right then and there. Coming out of Santa Ana, I mean, another song that one he hadn't played in '73 either, so it was just back to back holy crap, and and yeah, and he, I thought, I thought he nailed it. I thought he did a tremendous job, and and the audience just ate ate it up. I mean, they were really, really into the song Thundercrack and. And it's that was another one that all of a sudden it, it showed up every night for the I think for just about the rest of the tour. Maybe not Norfolk, but certainly I think from every show from then on. Am I wrong? I believe I you're right. Yeah. So it was it was fun and it got to hear it again and again. So not going to complain about that. After that, did you go to Norfolk? No, I did not. My friend got married that weekend, so I had to not I had to go, but I chose to go to my friend's my best friend's wedding instead of singing this show. <laughs> that that's a really nice set list as well. He did the wall there, which we would later see at the Meadowlands. Bruce Hornsby made a guest appearance on You Can Look and Across the Border. A very, very solid show. Oh, very. And this is one of those shows where rare show on this tour where no decent recording came out of it i mean we got it was passable but for something like like this that had downbound train as and you can look as you said and the wall that was a big one uh just just somewhat disappointing that we don't have something better can we go back to philly for a second i just noticed the sound check i don't know oh, yes yes we can talk about what that was, is there an iem of the sound check by some chance i'm sure there is because he sound checked Loose Ends, TV Movie, Seven Angels, both nights. Yes. Yeah, I kind of imagined that TV Movie would, would have been in that piano style that he did, like like he did You Can Look In. So I think that would have been really, really tremendous to see, obviously. That would, that would have blown my mind, I think, a little bit more than, than Thundercrack, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, that would have been really cool. Uh, now, what about Seven Angels? Um, I think Seven Angels was done very similar to uh, to Ain't Got You with that kind of guitar sound. That makes sense. So let's move on to Atlantic City. And as you know, this is when I arrived to see the last few shows of the tour. And Atlantic City, I, I was just glad to be there and to catch up and to see some of the stuff that I missed. There were actually no tour debuts in the show, but Santa Ana was played. Uh, Thundercrack was played, of course, Drive All Night, which was, again, it's just so magnificent. And and I remember this was this was a really enjoyable show. I, I, I hadn't seen The Born in the USA yet. So it, it was just good to get a, a look at what he was doing since the last time I had seen him, which had been four months earlier. Yeah, it was another solid show, I think. But I think he had a bit of a cold going on, so he wasn't in, in full voice. But yeah, that was a that was a solid show, solid set list. I mean, Janie, don't you lose heart? Drive all night, as you said. Fade away, Johnny ninety nine, Sandy. So he was he was he was bringing out the good stuff, even if his voice was wasn't hundred percent. He was also impacted by the cold you mentioned at the first show in East Rutherford. Well, this was he played one show in May. This was the first show of the fall leg, and. 
I thought this was a very solid show. Uh, Backstreet's made an appearance. Does this bus stop was played on ukulele, which that's the first time ever. I don't know if that's something we want to mark or not, but it is a fact. Got new timer again on auto harp. Yes. And I I remember it was an enjoyable show. The thing that sticks out the most to me about that first night at the Meadowlands was the empty sky opener, which I thought worked really well. Yes, it did. And then going into Born in the USA, I think the the effect of both songs actually uh, were, were, were intensified. And then going into Devils and Dust, so you really had a, a theme going and covering many years and of, of U.S. history, and it was really strong. It was a strong opening. He did make reference to the incident from May 19th. He he said that the last time that I was here, I cursed that whole section and they were just trying to tell me about an equipment problem. <laughs> and he did say, don't fuck with me this time either because I'll do it again. So <laughs> fortunately, there was no equipment issue during that show. Uh, none whatsoever. And that was a that was a good show. And then the second night was the I guess he was really celebrating the anniversary of Born to Run with two songs, two tour debuts from that album. Meeting Across the River and Born to Run. Born to Run was dedicated to Donnie Einer, of course, the chairman of Sony Music, who was very, very close to Bruce. I I thought this was one of the unsung shows of the tour. And when we talk about potential archive releases, I love this show. It just the Frankie was great. Used Cars Mm -hmm. was great. Uh, The Meeting Across the River solo piano was beautiful. You also got Two for the Road in here which was followed by Drive All Night and Lucky Town was played. This was a really, really well put together show. And in keeping with what we were talking about earlier, because you did get the Born to Run stuff in here, this this show really is packaged and you have Born in the USA as well. This really touches on just about every portion of his career. Yes, it does. And maybe um, maybe the fact that he does have the Born to Run stuff makes it intentionally overlooked because we have so many other versions of those songs, so it's not exactly uh, like, like unique. You know, it's it's it's. I guess it's special for the tour, but in terms of the overall overall history, maybe maybe not so much. But you're right; it was a strong show overall. And one little thing I liked <laughs> about this show was that after "Ain't Got You," where he talked about being a public servant and and he, and, he, and he sounds and he autographs boobs and whatnot, girlfriend's left hit. And then, then the next song is Brilliant Disguise, and, and it brings out Patty, and he was Bruce was joking like, oh, it's just shtick, it's just shtick, you know, being embarrassed about the whole thing, uh, you know, signing the girlfriend's left hit. And Patty comes out, and she goes, I wasn't listening. And I think the temperature in the room went down like five degrees, or at least that was my impression. We will not comment further on that. Hopefully, all was well when they went home that night. Yes, and then the following week when they were in Trenton, everything was uh, all smiles. Everybody was smiling. And in between the Meadowlands and Trenton, we got a show that was had to be rescheduled, and that was the show at Hard Rock Live because there had been a hurricane earlier in November when the show was originally supposed to be played. This was a really good show. And, and again, talking about potential archive releases from this tour – you got Roll the Dice in there, which was a tour debut. And then you had guest appearances from Stephen and from Clarence. Stephen guested on Two Hearts and Clarence and Steve both guested on Drive All Night and Thundercrack. Drive All Night is 
it was great every time Bruce did it alone, but this night, truly monumental. Yeah, Clarence's solo on that one. I know it's always a highlight when he did it at the band shows in, in 2008 and 2009, but I think when it was just Bruce on piano and, and Steve on guitar there, I think his piano, or his sax solo rather, stood out even more. And, it, and if memory serves, it was just just beautiful. I mean, he just sounds like he just nailed it. They totally nailed it. I, I loved watching that. I, I loved listening to it. And, and again, that that would... You agree this would be a good archive release, right? It would, and not just because of the uh, the strong set list and the guest appearances by, by Clarence and Stephen, but this is one of those for, for collectors where there wasn't an excellent recording of it uh, at the time, and and so an, an official release would, would move the ball considerably on, on the sound quality of the show. Totally agree. And from there, there was only one more city on the Devils and Dust tour to go. That, of course, was Trenton. You and I attended those shows together. The first show was on November 21st. It opened with a tribute to Link Ray with Rumble. Ray had just died. And the shocker of this evening (laughs) in two ways. Well, first of all, the man behind the curtain, Alan Fitzgerald, who had played piano offstage the entire tour, made an appearance on stage and... Even bigger was the song he made the appearance for, and it was Songs for Orphans, which, of course, has now been released on Letter to You. In 2005, the idea that Songs for Orphans would be played at any Springsteen show would be so beyond any real comprehension, I I, I can't even put it into words. Well, actually, we need to bring up something here because of that. That is the emergence of E Street Radio. Um, that uh, Easter Radio went on online, online or on the satellite, however you want to call it, uh, that fall. I think almost to coincide with the Born to Run box. And, and apparently they had been given the okay by Bruce himself to say, if you can find it, you can play it. And so they did. They they played bootlegs. Uh, it was that was kind of it was interesting to hear you know live stuff that. Crystal Cat had released and not Sony, and that so that was pretty wild. But they also played this stuff like Song for Orphans, and they played Two for the Road, which, and Bruce even commented that at the time, like it was, you know, he would be listening to, listening to his own to his own station. It was kind of mind blowing, he said. And but he would hear these songs that he had just forgotten about, and and that's where that's where Song for Orphans came from. And so it took it took E Street Radio to play it, and then. And he plays it live a couple of times. And then, you know, 16 years later, he releases a new recording of it. (laughs) Quite the journey. It is quite the journey. And uh, do you remember, I mean, you and I were sitting right next to one another. How shocked were we when that started? Uh, We were pretty shocked. Uh, I don't think, uh, I think, I think I'm, you and I are in agreement that we're not really up on that super early stuff. Correct. So it took us – it's not like we were singing along at the top of our lungs. Not that we would have done no. that anyway. No. But it, it, it's it's not like he pulled that real world back in April, let's be honest. But it was it was a holy crap, I never thought I would see this kind of moment. That's well, really that, what, well, it, what, it, what, it, what it came down to. That's the thing here. There's stuff going on, and we're certainly going to get to it on the 22nd, the following night. There's stuff going on that is – nobody is denying is just mind-boggling, jaw-dropping, like – can't believe this would ever be played but for you and for me and this is just a personal taste thing the real world performance is bigger than 
some of these 70s songs coming back again. That's just you and I are in agreement on that. People are free to disagree with that. I'm sure many of them do. <laughs> but that is just the way you and I happen to feel. Right. And I would have been a lot more blown away if he had done, say, you know, Loose Change, to be to be perfectly honest. But but still, Song for Orphans, that's a song I never thought I'd see live. Yeah, same here. And now let's go to the last night of the tour, which, of course, has been an archive release. It was a great show. I walked out figuring it may be the last time that I would see Bruce in that sort of format. And if that was the case, it was a good one to go out with. There were four tour debuts. One of them, again, keeping the theme here in these final run of shows, Zero and Blind Terry, not played since 1974, 31 years earlier. That wasn't exactly a you know a popular one back in 1974. It wasn't like Thundercrack or, or Rosie. It was basically an outtake off of Greetings. I mean, it was released on tracks, so that was pretty cool. And again, another one I never thought, never thought I would ever see. Well, the thing about this show is, You've got Zero and Blind Terry, you've got Songs for Orphans, and you've got Thundercrack in the same show. Now, as a Springsteen fan... Don't forget uh, Growing Up. <laughs> growing Up. But though Growing Up we had been played many, many times over the years. Those three songs basically had all been unplayed for 30 years. The idea that they would all be played in the same show, really, even now, it seems fairly farcical but yet it happened. And I think that it, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. Do, do you think uh, what makes him pull out these songs just in New Jersey? Is it just the, the fact that New Jersey goes back to the beginning? I, you're never going to see Zero and Pl Blind Terry pulled out in, say, St. Louis. <laughs> I guess not. Um, you got County Fair in St. Louis. Um, but yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Um, I don't know. I think maybe he he felt he had done the the 92 and 87 stuff in the summer and so now it was time for the fall to to see what other what other avenues he could he could he could explore and I obviously you and I that's not our favorite period but at the same time it's something we hadn't seen before. We haven't really haven't seen since. No, and I would not expect to. I, I if Zero and Blind Terry's ever played again, I would be very, very surprised. And and I'm glad that I saw it. It was it was great. And it was followed by Backstreets, which was oh, a great, perfect. yeah, perfect pairing. And then you got the insane. The city was played on the bullet mic and then fire was played on the bullet mic. Plus, the show had started what, with Born in the USA. This was it was it was quite an interesting show. And, and I did pull it out and listen to some of it today. And again, I walked out of the show. I thought it was really, really strong. The the use of the bullet mic, the older songs, it gave it a totally different feel. That's the thing that I was remarking on today as I was listening to it. Just so totally different in many ways than the shows I had seen earlier in the tour. Yes, it had a much different feel. I, I think at the beginning, maybe he was trying to emulate the Joe tour a little bit. Maybe not, obviously not with the with the piano and the other other instrumentation, but you know, he still had that history. And now he had the confidence of, of being on the road for six months and playing different stuff. And just because you're solo doesn't mean it has to be dour. It can be fun. And that's and that's what he did. That's the direction he went in. I, I thought the fire on the bullet mic in particular worked really well. 
What, oh, what did very, you think of that? Yeah, it was very cool. That was such a so unique, so unique, and it did work well. And I thought it worked well into All the Way Home. And that's so you got a really good stretch of songs there. Yeah, and then that was followed by Mansion on the Hill with Patty making an appearance. Beautiful together as always, and the drive all night was great that night. And then in the encore, the Thundercrack. I remember being particularly energetic that night. And then he brought out basically the entire family and then for some. Santa Claus, and that was a lot of fun. Yes, it was. Uh, Patty and Patty was a lot warmer at the show than she was a week or, a week earlier, and. It showed they they sounded great together and they were just having fun. I mean, I remember Bruce uh, making a big deal out of, out of Sammy being on stage with them and he they were just having fun, fun as a family. And then the tour wrapped up with the two traditional closers, The Promised Land and Dream Baby Dream. And with that, we left Trenton Arena. Well, it's actually, I believe, called Sovereign Bank Arena, or was at the time. Who knows what it's called now? That could have gone through three <laughs> name changes since then. But we left that arena, and I, I remember at the time we there was already talk of perhaps the E Street Band returning. But as we know, he took yet another detour, as I, I was saying earlier in the show, and and we got the Seeger Sessions tour before the E Street Band tour. And Bruce was already preparing for the Seeger sessions even before the Devils and Dust tour even started. Actually, it was the second Seeger session was in March of 2005 before the tour even kicked off. And then just two months after the tour ended, he he had the third Seeger session in January of 2006 at his farm. That's right. I I always forget that. And as you said, it was such a I mean, what a what a what a run solo acoustic in 05, and then the 18 piece sessions band tour with just playing totally different material all that folk stuff. And then in the following year, you were back to, back to E street. And that's, that's a hell of a run. He, he was, yeah. he was rocking those, those aughts or the O's or whatever you want to call them. Whatever he, you want to call was, that decade. He was really prolific and he was clearly really feeling it. He just gave the variety. You don't see that from a lot of artists. You, you look at this and and everything you just described and all the various instruments he played on the Devils and Dust tour. He really did show what a masterful musician he was or and still is during this three year period because it, it's remarkable. It, it really does blow me away. And even though I didn't really love the Seeger Sessions tour, I appreciate the fact that he did these various things and he, he stepped away from E Street and took these chances, some of which worked. Uh, 2005, they sold a huge number of tickets. The, this tour was a huge success. 2006, we know, at least in the States, it, it didn't really work as far as ticket sales. The, the Seeger Sessions didn't really catch on with the general audience. So, But just to take all these chances, it's really amazing. I mean, the only other chance I can even think of, even even approaching this kind of risk was would be western stars to have that come up come out and then right before doing an e-street record letter to you but of course the distinction there is he did not tour for western stars just as he did not tour for nebraska prior to born in the usa yeah this is the most probably the most unique period of his career the, that that stretch in the in the mid-aughts there uh, i would agree with that statement so with that that brings our Devils and Dust discussion to a close. Let, let's talk a little just for a second before we wrap up about the, the show. This is going to be our last regularly scheduled episode of the season. This is our season finale. We are going to continue to do 
mini episodes when the archives come out. And of course, any breaking news that comes out and we expect there's going to be breaking news, certainly U.S. tour dates and who knows what else. What are you hearing about the fall? Do we think there's going to be a release? I don't know at this point. I, I'm not 100 percent. I would like to think there is, but I can't I can't guarantee. I don't feel as confident as I did last August or the August 2020 before Letter to You came out. So fingers are crossed, I hope, and it would be kind of foolish not to release something right before a tour starts. But we do see signs that it, it's very possible something is going to happen. It's very possible. I like to hope it's tracks too, but can't can't make any guarantees. Okay, let's leave it at that. And just the the final word is we're we're still trying to figure out exactly how we're going to handle the tour. I think we're going to probably do more episodes. Uh, of course, we never expected to be this long into this podcast without there having been a tour. Uh, when we too true. when we originally <laughs> conceived it, we thought there was going to be a tour coming up fairly soon. Uh, that is not what happened, but we're, we're talking about it, and I, I think we're going to hopefully do some cool stuff. And, and needless to say, if there's a release this fall, especially if it's tracks too, we're, we're going to do some cool stuff there too. Oh, obviously, we're going to cover all current events and all new releases, and then and then then we'll see how the how the how the tour progresses. But we we plan on talking about a lot of new Bruce. A lot of new Bruce news over the next couple of years, unlike the previous three. <laughs> so and we're looking forward to it. That is for sure. Yeah, because for one thing, it's harder to come up with topics when he's not doing anything. So well, when no one was doing anything, we had a year and a half practically of, of pandemic enforced uh, nothing. I guess we kept people company. At least I hope so. If we kept you company, we really appreciate it. We we do so much appreciate the feedback we're getting. And it, when people write to us and say that they're really enjoying listening to the show, it, 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 we hear it and we, we it, it means a lot to us, really. Yes, it does. It brings a big smile to our face and uh, knowing that we're, uh, we're reaching people. So that's very, it's just very cool to know. So we'll be back in July to cover the archive. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Three seasons gone, Flynn. Can't believe it. I can't imagine uh, that when you call me that day in uh, was it July, June of nineteen. That three years later we'd be sitting here recording what our fiftieth episode, sixtieth episode. Well, we're beyond that, yeah. Yeah. I, I hoped it would work. I I thought maybe it would work. So I, again, we we really appreciate the feedback, and if you think it's working, it's a wonderful thing for us. So anyway, let me do our spiel. None but the bravest presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. We're part of Evergreen Podcasts. On Twitter, you can find us at NBTB Podcast. On the web, we're at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.